1: Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
0: Well, hello and welcome to Unquirking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Gary Simons. Dr. Simons is a neurosurgeon who has treated tens of thousands of patients with devastating illnesses. He's a professor at the Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine and the Virginia Tech School of Neuroscience. He has published three nonfiction books on burnout and psychological distress in healthcare providers and routinely writes about and gives talks on neuroscience, neurosurgery, medical socioeconomics, medical humanism, medical ethics, and burnout. He joins me today to talk about his debut novel, Death's Pale Flag. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Dr. Simons. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm deeply honored. I'm deeply honored to have you here, man, with all of your credentials. Um, but tell me, as, as we begin, where does your story as an author begin?
2: Well, I I suppose you can always say it started when I was a young child and I was inspired by a burning bush. But I I don't know. I didn't there was no uh there was no inflection point uh for I for our profession, you know, you you have to write a lot. Uh often it's very you know, it's very dry stuff, but you're always writing stuff uh about the patients and in the charts and all that sort of thing and then you're writing uh, papers for, for scientific oriented stuff and all. And so I, I, it's, it's part of your day, um, in many ways. And, and then I got into the, the world, the burnout, uh, really for the last 15 years have been studying that and, uh, working on it and writing about it. Um, but it was really only when I, um, really only when I retired from, clinical neurosurgery, which I did a few years ago um, for a number of reasons, but uh, a little earlier than I anticipated. So I guess I had a lot of energy left and uh, I wanted to tell certain stories and um, I wanted to see how it came out in fiction. It's it's a whole different world from, from writing the
0: nonfiction stuff. Sure. What was your interest in burnout? Did you experience burnout yourself or what, what prompted you to, to start investigating that? Yeah, I think
2: I, I, I love to uh, pin it on everybody else. And, uh, and, and truth of the matter was, I had reached a point with my team. I was the boss. I was the chief of neurosurgery. And I had a whole bunch of neurosurgeons and PAs and residents under me. And I had reached a point where I couldn't stand them. Um, because, uh, everybody was kind of acting out. They were acting like kind of these classic TV holier than now surgeons. Uh, and we're really just a bunch of pricks. And I, (laughs) of course I believed I was well above it all, but I know I wasn't. Um, and, and I, I, I had reached the point we were getting so many complaints about us that I was like, I'm gonna either have to fire everybody or figure out what, what we're doing wrong. And uh, that's when the concept of burnout kind of came uh, to me through a number of ways. Uh, and I began to realize that we were all burning out. We were all burning out from uh, the world that we inhabited. And uh, uh, that perhaps if we tackled the burnout aspect of this, that things might go smoother. And it, it, it was it was truly amazing once, once we took it on. Uh, our team went from I was getting twenty thirty complaints about my team every month, uh, and it went it went to zero. And the team eventually was getting accolades all over the hospital.
0: So it really was
2: an impressive turnaround.
0: What are what are the key signs of burnout? Uh, I promise we are going to talk about your latest book, but I'm I'm <laughs> just curious, like like in in that environment, what are some some core signs that you know someone's burning out? Yeah. the and, and to be honest, you know, the
2: novel deals with burnout as well. But, uh, I, you know, the classic definitions of burnout involve an emotional exhaustion and a nihilism and a going numb. And, and there are these assays that you can take and it will tell you if you're burnt out or not. Uh, but the reality is, I think it, it, it's much it's much more a spectrum than it is this all or nothing um, deal, I think we all are in this society and in, in this kind of high high energy, high demand, everything's buzzing, multitasking society that we're in. I think we're all burning out to one degree or another. Um, and so it shows up in many ways. And I think it shows up uh, different in different people because I think it tends to accentuate uh, some of our personality deep some of our personality shortcomings so in our world it really was kind of manifesting itself as this just as the seething this anger that was going on all the time where people would snap immediately at the simplest of questions and and not engage with people and not really look to get to know and become friendly with your coworkers and and that sort of thing so uh, it, it it can certainly manifest in many ways, but you know the classic sense is that you're just running out of energy to deal with the normal hassles of the nor- of every day.
0: Well, let's talk about Death's Pale Flag. What can you share with the audience uh, about this novel? Well, I'm hoping it will be a uh, a bit of a thrill ride.
2: I think um, there are, there are multiple things that might uh, interest people. I, I know that there's a lot of interest in in my world, in the world of brain surgery and neurosurgery, and there's been some uh, very nice uh, nonfiction books about it. I don't think there's a lot of of fiction uh, taking place in the neurosurgical world, but but I I I wanted to really open the doors and let people see uh, as as honestly as I could what it was like, what we were capable of, what we weren't, uh, what the actual operations were like, what, what, how people got to that state and all. Uh, and I, th- I began thinking that uh, doing it through fiction might be uh, much more immersive. Uh, i like to say that I, I was hoping to put the, the, the reader in the operating room with the high-speed cranial drill in their hands, and they're the ones opening it up and, and taking a look inside so i on one level that that's certainly uh what I would like uh the readers to get out of it and then um I certainly the burnout themes are there, and I want people to kind of get a sense of uh, you know how how people respond to high stress and how we all can burn out. Mm-hmm. um I wanted people to also see the kind of the i, I the grace is the, the word that most often comes to me, the grace and the bravery of the patients that are involved, uh, patients and their families that are facing the very worst days of their lives. I And I, it's been nothing but an inspiration throughout my life, throughout my working life um, to to see their responses. I often think if I were in the same situation, I'd be running around the room screaming and throwing things and breaking things, and, and just uh, it, it's the exact opposite. They are, they are brave, they're tough, they're full of grace uh, and gratitude. It really is inspirational. So I wanted a little bit of that to come through. And then I wanted a, I, I wanted a little thrills and chills. Uh, and so there's, uh, there's a ghost element. Our, our main protagonist the, is a neurosurgeon, and uh, he begins to see ghosts, and he begins to experiencing uh, experience them in an escalating fashion. And the question is, uh, could they be real or or is he losing it? Um, and uh, And that's what we
0: play with, yes, well, I'm sure we don't want to give that away. But was that ghost element, you know, inspired by some like real life event for you or or you know, is that is that a common thing that that might happen? Some kind of ghostly sightings. Well, don't you see my friend here sitting next to me? I, <laughs> no,
2: no. Uh, no um, you know, it's interesting. I I, I personally have, uh, as far as I know, have not experienced anything like that. Maybe a couple of times in my fraternity basement back in my college days. But <laughs> I am um, the my I grew up in a family. Um, Uh, my mother and my grandmother lived in the house uh, and they're both Scottish or off the boat Scots. And uh, they profoundly believed in the supernatural and both had many stories of their interactions with ghosts. Uh, And, you know, when you go to Britain, it's like everywhere you move, there's supposed to be a haunting and a ghost somewhere. But so I, that just, that was just Part of my soul. I mean, that was built into me. So I've I've loved ghost stories. Uh, I you know continue to seek them out on on Netflix and all that sort of thing. So uh, it was easy with me to play with the genre. And I was hoping that yeah something like a ghost story would kind of help propel people through the medical side of the book because there's a lot of medical components to the book. Uh, But I thought you know it would it would keep a steady beat of. Thrills and chills. Although I wanted, I also wanted the readers to to think about: Well, what really is more scary in this book? Is it is it the uh,
0: supernatural,
2: or is it the very natural world of of what we're facing in the in the operating rooms and ICUs and stuff?
0: Yeah. How did you find going from having written a, a lot of nonfiction in your life? I mean, not just the books, but of course, all the writing you've done throughout your career. Going from that to writing fiction, was it a challenge to to write fiction for you? Um, I, I would bet that it was a challenge to write good fiction. Uh,
2: I, <laughs> it was no challenge at all to put stuff on the page. So uh, the, I guess the jury is out on that one of, of how uh, much of a challenge it really proved to be. I found that I, I called it like uh, verbal dysentery. The minute I opened up, those doors, it just came pouring out. And I ended up with like 260,000 words. And wow. I, was like, I was saying, well, I know I'm, I'm not Stephen King, so nobody's going to want to uh, try to read this book. Uh, so I, I really uh, cut it down. And of course, I rewrote the heck out of it. So I'm hoping uh, that it's reasonable, but it, it, it was more fun than it was challenging. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. And it, you know, when you're when you're writing for medicine and I don't know biomedical stuff, it, it, you know, you have very very tight constraints. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's no navigational uh, beacons. I could go anywhere I wanted with it. Um, and originally in those two hundred sixty thousand words, there were all sorts of things that that were there. There was a witch. There was a pro football player that they're gone, but. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I went all over the place.
0: Did you have a team, you know, around you helping you shape the development of the novel? Like after you did your first draft, did you have editors that you were working with or an agent that was really helping you and say, Hey, look, you know, this is all good, but we got to go from 200 something thousand words down to, I don't know, maybe 80 or 90. Yes. And, uh,
2: yes, I guess I, I, uh, First of all, nobody got a hold of the two hundred and sixty thousand word book. Um, But I, you know, I I did send it out to a couple of of uh, what do you call it? Uh, Now I'm going to block on the name of the editors. Kind of a content editor, as as opposed to you know the copywriting or whatever part of it, Um, because I'd never done it before, and this whole the whole fictional side is really new to me. And, uh, they had some amazing, you know, really good suggestions and, and, uh, ways to contain, I guess, uh, how I was like a, a wild horse romping through the meadows and, uh, try, you know, how to pen it in a little bit more. And then I, I had, uh, several close, uh, friends and my wife and family who, who I subjected, uh, them to some of the early, uh, Uh, The early iterations and they were very helpful. So, yeah, absolutely. A lot of people took a swipe at it good and early.
0: How was, you know, sort of getting that feedback? Was it, was it tough to hear or, or were you like open to it? And, and because I know that, you know, especially with a first novel, some authors tell me, you know, it's really resistant to, to what they had to say, but it sounds like you were, you were pretty open to it yeah
2: I guess i I had no real pretenses uh, of being a fiction writer, um, and so I think I was probably less sensitive to it like if i I do give a lot of medical talks and a lot of I, I give it to non-medical people as well but I give a lot of talks, and you know you always get these these um, uh, surveys done about it, and it it would really bother me if two out of a hundred people said that, you know, I sucked and it would really bother me. But that was my business. You know, I, I, I felt very comfortable doing it. Writing fiction is not my business uh, or was not. And and so I think I was probably more open uh, than maybe some people. It didn't, it didn't hurt per se. And it really felt helpful. I mean, it, it felt like people were true, truly trying to point me in the right direction. And I guess how can you not take that as
0: something as positive? Yeah, The name of your novel is really interesting. Interesting to me. Death's pale flag. How did you come up with the name? It's I'm very curious about that. Well, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Shakespeare nut. I, I kind of
2: read Shakespeare for fun. Um, and Shakespeare criticism, even probably more than Shakespeare anymore. But that stuff is always on, on my bedside table. And, uh, Um, this is a, it's a quote from Romeo and Juliet and it's when Romeo finds Juliet, presuming she's dead. And he's remarking on the fact that she hasn't even lost the blush of life in her cheeks. Uh, uh, you know, that she must be so freshly dead that she hasn't gone pale with, with death. And, you know, we've certainly seen that transition, um, in real life. Uh, so it it very much stuck with me and, and has a real meaning to me.
0: All goes back to Shakespeare, Billy Shakespeare. <laughs> Always. <laughs> um, well, anything um, else you'd like the readers to know about this book before I move on to some other questions I have for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think
2: one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book and, and I think readers will will pick up on a lot of of different themes and what i really want to do um is engage people and i mean engage people i mean have discussions with people i want people to think about some of the stuff they read in the book and contact me and i'm i'm delighted to talk to people one on one i'm de- de- delighted to talk to reading groups i'm delighted to talk to you know bigger groups uh, about any of the themes in the book, I, I, you know, we touch on a lot of themes. Like I said, uh, you know, certainly burnout and the grace of of the patients. But I'm also really I love that that the conflict, if you will, or the maybe conflict's the wrong word, but there's there's a stress, a strain between the scientific world and the spiritual world, and I'm very interested in that. Would love to hear people's feelings and thoughts about that. Uh, and, and, you know, just a, a whole lot of other, other themes that hopefully I tapped into and, and I'm just inviting people to talk to me.
0: Well, I mean, you, you've seen, I mean, obviously you lived in the scientific world. You've literally had people's lives, you know, in your hands. Um, I, I'm curious, what, what is your take on the, the link between the scientific world and the spiritual world? Uh, are they are they natural adversaries or can they live in harmony somehow? I I think we I, I, the my response is to
2: the latter. Yes, uh, they should and could. Um, I think we set up an artificial antithesis or an, antipathy between them, um, and, and I'm not sure why. I think both sides, you know, the very spiritual and the very scientific. Would like to believe the other side is 100% wrong. And I'm, I, you know, I think uh, there's, a, there's a real hubris on both sides that, you know, I know the answer. Um, and I, I've been on the, on the uh, scientific side for much of my life. And certainly there is that scientific hubris that, uh, well, of course, none of this stuff can exist. There is always the scientific answer for everything, but that's not the way science really works. Science, science is an estimation. It's an estimation of what truth might be, but I'm not sure we ever ascribe to, you know, knowing absolute truth. We just get as close as we can. And then it, that affords us a certain predictability in, in how we manage ourselves in this crazy world. But you know, is science ever going to prove or disprove ghosts? Is it ever going to disprove a god? Is it ever going to disprove an afterlife? I, 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 I can't imagine when you when you get deep into astrophysics. I mean, I think there's just as much leaps of faith there as there often is in in uh, religion. So, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all, at all. And I think it's fun to to look at and and play with that that interaction between the two.
0: Yeah, no, it's an interesting debate. And, and I always find it interesting to to remind people that, you know, who's a Gregory Mendel was a monk and he was credited for inventing the scientific method. You know, I'm sure there were variations on it before, but you know, uh, then again, the church has had its uh, issues with people like Galileo. So. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, again, I, I,
2: I, I always worry when somebody is absolutely certain about anything.
0: And uh, I, I just think the more I know, the more I realize they don't know. Well, I'm absolutely certain that this is going to be an interesting read for the listeners of Uncorking a Story. Um, I hope so. And I do have some uh, some fun questions for you because sure. I always like to to get to know my guests a little bit more. Um, And one way I like to do that is through pop culture. So I'm curious, doctor, when you were growing up, when you're growing up, uh, did you have any favorite TV shows, things that you like to watch on TV?
2: Well, I didn't see a lot of TV, um, but I was at the Gettysburg Address and that was like one of my favorite. Yeah, no. If you start talking pop culture, we're in different generations, way separate.
0: That's quite all right. Uh,
2: Favorite TV shows. My parents were in World War II um and so uh anything that had to do with war with war uh was definitely high on the list so there was rat patrol and combat and a whole bunch of other uh military shows and then i i ascribe most of my personality and the way i deal with the world interact with the world uh to bugs bunny um and that is a certain level of irre- irreverence and uh, never taking
0: things too seriously. Sure. Uh, you mentioned, you know, enjoying ghost stories before. Do you have a favorite ghost story, you know, whether it's a, a book or a film that uh, that you really like? One of my favorites is one of my mother's
2: um, and uh, they had, uh, they had, she was uh, born and, and spent her early years in Scotland and then they moved down to England really at the beginning of world war II, but, uh, they moved to a pub. My, my grandfather ran the pub, but it, it had rooms upstairs for rent. And my mother had one of the rooms there. And she started complaining to the the family that somebody would come in the room and start moving furniture around or moving her bed in the middle of the night or lifting the end of the bed. And. you know they they blew it off for a while, and she kept complaining about it until uh, finally they started looking into it. And they were trying to figure, well, are there trains coming by or buses or something like that? They eventually they eventually called the previous owners of the pub, and uh, they said, uh, "Which room is she in? Room twenty three or whatever it was." And he said, "Oh no, of course, room twenty. Everybody knows room twenty three is haunted," and. Uh, typical British fashion. Uh, my, my grandparents apparently were like, well, there's the answer. They didn't move her into another room or anything.
0: They had the answer. It's just haunted. I I wish I could interview a ghost on this program. Um, because I just want to know the motivation behind just moving objects and you know, what, what, what do they get out of it? You know, what, what is their, what, what, what's the MO, you know, what, why?
2: yeah I, I you know I part in the book, part of the supposition there was that uh there you know, ghosts may be trying to get to us uh somehow, and I, there, and I, I reasoned that this this surgeon who's kind of right there at the dividing line of life and death, he's watched multiple people cross that line and pulled a few back. Uh, um, maybe they would be the, uh, you know, the, the ones most, uh, most, I don't know, able to receive, if you will, maybe it's not so easy to make that contact. And so if there are ghosts, maybe they would be reaching for people like that, who may be familiar to them. May might see them hanging around a little bit. So I don't know. I, I don't know, but that's, that was one of the concepts I played with. And then of course, the, pro- the protagonist is saying well, he believes they are ghosts. Uh, we're trying to decide whether he's crazy or not, but uh, he believes they're ghosts.
0: And therefore, he's trying to figure out what the heck are they trying to reach out to me for. You just mentioned something that I'm curious about, the dividing line between life and death. How fine, from, from your perspective as someone who's, you know, done probably tens of thousands of surgeries, how fine is the line between life and death? It's pretty fine. Uh, you, you were asking
2: before, um, you know, some of the reasons why uh, I wrote the book or why I would want, what messages I would want to come out of it. Another one is just how fragile this all is, how, how easy it is to cross that line depending on the circumstances. And, and therefore, I, I certainly hope that people come out of it cherishing what they have cherishing the life that they have cherishing the people they have around them because it is so easy to cross that line um we will be in the middle of an operation sometimes and say well that's it we know we're gone um you know on on a medical legal level it it gets a little bit more uh, drawn out and a little bit more, um, legalistic. Uh, and so we have to prove on multiple levels. Obviously it's easy if the heart stops, um, but, uh, and stay stopped. But, uh, when we're going for uh brain death, it's, it's much more of a a process. And yet we usually are pretty darn certain right away.
0: Wow. That is a, uh, that's somewhat chilling when you think about it, um, you know, because it's not like the brain is the brain isn't the system that just shuts down like like a light switch. I mean, there's I'm I'm guessing there's a process, whereas the heart can just stop. Does the brain, I mean, take a little while to. Fade away. Well, if you if if the
2: insult is bad enough, you've only got a few minutes. Um, the brain, the way the brain works, it, it is it is it takes a huge amount of energy and there's there's reasons uh why but it doesn't store energy in it so it needs the constant supply of glucose of sugar and of oxygen to produce enough energy to keep your nerves firing and you've only got a few minutes if that's completely shut off you've only got a few minutes to keep uh, to restore things or everything shuts down and goes out now most insults that we sustain, it's, it's not the whole brain that's, that's feeling it less indeed your heart stops. So if your heart stops, you've only got a few minutes to go before your brain is gone. But, uh, um, usually like a stroke will hit one area of the brain or, or that sort of thing. Now, sometimes the area that it hits can be very strategic. So we talk, in the book even we talk about your brain stem is kind of a series of on off switches for the rest of the computer. You know, your your the rest of the brain is the computer is all the hardware and, and all that sort of thing, but the brain stem is the on off switches. So if you have a stroke in your in your brain stem, for example, you may just shut off all the on off switches. Then it doesn't matter if all the hard drive and all the, the programs are still there and are still potentially
0: functionable. If you can't turn them on, you're dead. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about this because my my mother is, you know, currently she's 90 um, doesn't hasn't been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But man, her short term memory is just not there. You know, like she she came up here. I live in Connecticut. They They live in Florida. And my uh, I have a twin brother got married last weekend. Um, she came up for the wedding, couldn't remember why she was coming up here, had a great time at the wedding, following day. couldn't really remember being at the wedding. you know, and it's um it's hard and uh but not at no diagnosis of alzheimer's. um long term memory seems fine. It's just like the short term the past i don't know eight or so years has just been declining and declining and declining. it's uh you know, and I, I don't know I don't know what to think about it.
2: Yeah, we 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 all lose uh, memory, we all lose neurons, we all lose uh, connections uh, as the years go on. For sure, um, when you when you get to that age range, it does accelerate even under normal circumstances. Uh, but then then there are diseases such as Alzheimer's that will accelerate it and. It has, you know, what you're describing has an alzheimer feel, if you will, um, uh, with the short-term really getting affected, but still some, preser- or still a fair amount of preservation of long-term. Um, it, Alzheimer's can stay kind of in an early stage for quite a few years. And the older you get, the more prone you are to Alzheimer's as well. So it's it's possible. It's certainly not unreasonable to have her evaluated for it. Although sometimes, a lot of times,
0: it's mostly watching the clinical progression. Yeah. And uh, Alzheimer, a word I've never heard before, but <laughs> I just uh, made it up. But uh, Shakespeare, coined here, coined Shakespeare here was allowed story. to do it. I... <laughs> all right. Well, it all goes back to Billy Shakespeare. Um, yep. yep. So we've been talking to Dr. Gary Simons, the new Robin Cook, who I'm going to call him the new Robin Cook. First medical thriller oh. I ever read was Robin Cook. Um my my grandfather was a um was a field surgeon in World War II. Oh wow. And, and he had um a bookshelf at, at their condominium and uh, I saw Robin Cook, I think it was Coma or Brain, I can't remember which one. Um and I remember being a young kid and just picking it up and that that's what got me Hooked on Cook, um,
2: which With is that, a
0: phrase I never thought I'd say, Hooked on Cook. But.
2: <laughs> no, I, I thought uh, his, his works were great. Um, you were talking pop culture earlier. What, was, what were your early shows?
0: Man, one of my favorite shows as a kid, I have so many. I watched a lot of TV. But <laughs> one that stands out that my brother and I would actually play was Emergency. Um, which was about uh, paramedics in in LA County, and uh, I just thought yeah, with the fire trucks and then just the the action, the suspense. It was great. I loved that show. And then, then you know, I could talk about my love for the greatest American hero and Love Boat, but I'll save that for another episode. Yeah, I w- I was
2: hoping you would uh, at, at least ask me about music because my gen my generation had the best.
0: Well, there you go. And then name name some of your uh, your faves.
2: Well, the Stones, of course, and uh, Led Zeppelin uh, probably got me through many decades, Uh, (laughs) and I and I still listen to them. And as long as Keith is around, I I know there is you know
0: righteousness in this world. Keith uh, does not live far from uh, my twin brother, who I mentioned earlier, who got married. Does not live far from uh, from my brother Jimmy. Um, So right right, he's a local Connecticut guy. Wow. Or at least he I has know, a house here.
2: He had a neurosurgical procedure himself several years ago. He had uh, fallen from a tree or yes, something. Yes, fallen
0: from a tree. Exactly right. Had to have a, uh, a clot evacuated. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he's still alive is, is amazing, right? We lose Glenn Fry, but Keith Richards is still
2: kicking. are um, uh... living through chemistry
0: was always our our response. (laughs) I like the stones. I was more of a who guy. I I think there, there could be some kind of artificial separation between the two. My friend group, you were one or the other. And I was, was more on the who side of things. Um, but I was listening to the radio the other day and they played 19th nervous breakdown. And I think they said the song came out in 66. And I'm thinking, you know, the stones have been around since 62. Um, which is so hard to, even fathom. It's so hard to even fathom. But I'm like, wow, they, these guys have been around for a long time.
2: Yeah, I think Mick is the same age as our president uh, <laughs> or somewhere around there. And and the who is great. There's no question about it. And also, Pink Floyd is is another great one. From
0: of course, David Gilmore, his tone is um, unrivaled, unrivaled. can't think of anybody who's got a tone like that. It's such a such a great signature on him. Well, we've talked about it all. We've talked about death. We've talked about life. We've talked about uh, Alzheimer's things and music. And of course, uh, books and Death's Pale Flag is available. Uh, I imagine wherever books are sold. Yeah, it comes
2: out on uh, June 27th. Uh, and we'll hopefully, uh,
0: hopefully get some, garner some interest. Let's put it that way. There you go. So uh, Dr. Simons, do you have a, a website or social media handles you want to share with everybody? Sure. Uh, I, uh, the easiest one is, is I do have a
2: website. It's just under my name, Gary R. Simons, uh, S-I-M-O-N-D. you got to remember the D-S, uh, dot .com. So that one's pretty easy, Gary R. Simons, .com. I'm on Twitter and Facebook and everything else I can imagine. Usually pretty close to that as well under Gary R. Simons.
0: And I think a little birdie told me you have a TikTok account. Is that true? I, I do. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I, I started
2: populating. Uh, I'm, I'm making these mini videos. I, I, I teach a lot of uh, med school and uh, pre-meds uh, at Virginia Tech and um, the undergrads. What we're doing to the pre-meds, i it probably, probably going to write another nonfiction book at some point uh, saying our are we burning out our doctors before they reach medical school? What we do to our pre-meds is just insane anymore. And uh, so what I've tried to do, I'm making these short videos because everybody tells me their attention spans are so short, but I'm making these short videos, just starting to talk about, you know, medical school, how to get into medical school, how to improve your application, what life is like and stuff like that. So I mean,
0: start to, starting to feed them into TikTok, we'll see how that goes. There you go, all right. Well, Dr. Simons, thank you for talk, um, stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Oh, it's really a pleasure. I, I, I again, I'm, I'm
2: honored that you did this for me.
1: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.